0: Thank you very much, Rabbi Kesselman. To begin with, um, I'd like to thank my colleague Rabbi Alicia Rubin and my friend Rabbi Pinchas Durval from the Chaf K for their technical assistance in helping me prepare for tonight's share. My role today is to provide halachic insider information on the industry at large so people can make informed choices. So vitamins and medication on Pesach To properly understand the subject matter uh, and the details of the industry, I want to give a general hakdama on the difference between fermentation, extraction, and synthetic processes. Medication is usually made through a fermentation process or through a synthetic process, where various chemicals are reacted together to create the desired product. Generally speaking, when it comes to medication, it's the inactive ingredients that serve as binders, which can present challenges for paste, which would be dairy, but not chomets, or starch base, which can come from wheat, although more often than not, it's usually derived from non homet sources, such as potato or corn. As I'll mention later, in countries such as Europe or Australia, wheat starch is more prevalent. On rare occasions, the active ingredient in medication may be a cheshash chometz as well, but that's not as common. Most vitamins are produced using a fermentation process. This is referring to vitamins in pill form. In this process, the molecular profile of an ingredient changes. And this is very Negea for us because although the end product can be called gluten-free, it still presents a potential, challenge for, a potential challenge for Pesach. In contrast to the laws of Pas Yisro, if you have a product that's gluten-free and does not contain oat flour, it's not in the gather of Pas. That's because when it comes to baked goods, you're taking those ingredients and not changing them in any radical way. You're just putting them into a flour substance and baking them. When it comes to making vitamins, on the other hand, if a product is gluten free, um, it still does not mean it did not derive from wheat sources, because through the fermentation process, the gluten is essentially becomes gluten free because it's turned into a sugar. So, from a gluten free legal perspective, it's called gluten free. But halachically, if it originated from wheat starch, it's still a problem of chametz. So, to delve further into the fermentation process raw materials mixed with other ingredients and broken down to the point where the molecular profile of the raw material has changed. So if your feedstock, your starting material is going to be wheat starch, for example, as I said, it's usually not wheat starch, but in in Europe or Australia, it's more common. It could be wheat wheat starch, more likely. Then they ferment the wheat into sugar and then add a bacteria, which converts the sugar into whatever they're trying to make. At that point, the product will then be called gluten-free. But again, it's still a problematic for Pesach if the feedstock, the original material, was wheat starch-based. So therefore, just by seeing on a a vitamin product, gluten-free, one should not erroneously assume, oh, it's gluten-free, did not start from chameshes minedagan. It's not true. It's gluten-free because of the fermentation process, and the gluten is left behind, through the converting into sugar. But if it originated from chametz, it's still going to be chametz. Stick. Another way of making vitamin products is through extraction. That's, for example, if someone's going to take a liquid vitamin, that's where the raw materials are put into a what's known as a solvent or an extract, something that's often could be alcohol. So, for example, if I'm going to make Vanilla extract, I'm going to soak the bean into an alcohol, and the flavor is going to get pulled out through the alcohol. The etzim profile is not changed, it just takes on a new form. It's it's starting off as a vanilla bean, and now I've converted it into a liquid. So, for Pesach, extracted products are easier to research for this reason because to define and to determine whether or not they contain kidneys or hummus ingredients, all the ingredients and the solvents. And the extract material will be listed on the product label, usually. And then what's needed is to find out what was used as the extract. What kind of alcohol was used? Was it cane alcohol? Was it corn-derived alcohol? Was it hummus derived alcohol? Et cetera. But one has at least a clue as to what needs to be researched by looking at the product label. As I said earlier, in America, wheat starch is more expensive than corn starch. And grain alcohol is more expensive than corn or sugar-derived alcohol. Therefore, in America, it's less likely to be wheat-derived. With regards to herbal supplements, the herbs themselves are not a problem, but the alcohol or the glycerin can be pl- problematic, which is the material that's used to form the extraction. If the product is certified year-round by a hechsher then that's the easiest and best way to verify the material, whether or not it's only kitneous or whether or not there's a chashash chometz. You call up the hashkocha, find out about the extract material, about the solvent, whether it's the glycerin, um, or usually that wouldn't be such a problem, but if it's the alcohol, you want to make sure it's not chometz-derived, and usually the hashkocha would be able to tell you that information. That's getting first-hand information, and that's the best way to do that. When it comes to tablets... Some of them are glazed, and the glaze itself can be an issue because usually, again, as I said, in America, it's going to be kidney-based, but in Europe and Australia, it's more common to use wheat-derived ethanol. Happens to be, for some reason, which we don't really know why, vitamin C is more commonly fermented from ingredients that are problematic for Pesach. Now, that's the background about the food industry and the vitamin industry as a whole. What do we do about this information? So if a doctor tells someone that they must take a particular medication, whether it's for a physical ailment, a mental ailment, or an emotional ailment, they must take it and we say to them to take it in a swallowable pill form because that is shaloy That's the not, or It's not an ordinary way of eating. It's not considered to be food. And there's no Shila. That's what they have to do. I'm not paskening, but if, but from what I've spoken to chassidish rabbanim, litvish rabbanim from all walks of from life, they all say that if a person has to take a pill, a swallowable pill as medication, they must continue taking it on Pesach if the doctor says they have to take it. Chas for somebody to play around with such a thing. It's mamish bikoch nefesh, and one has to be mekayim the of Chewable pills and liquid. Pills or li- liquid vitamins or liquid medication are a different story because because it's chewable or because it's a liquid, it's, it's, it's considered derech And therefore, it's much more problematic. So if someone's in that situation, the first thing we tell them is to try and get something in swallowable pill form, if they can take it. If you're dealing with adults, most adults can swallow a pill. If it's someone who cannot swallow a pill... Then one must work with one's doctor and one's Rav to see what has to be done um, and then and act accordingly. If it's a matter of Pikoach Nefesh, they have to do what the doctor says, they just have to figure out the best way to do it. I remember my Shver, Rabbi Daniel Levi, Alavashol, telling me a story that he heard directly from a, rav, a very famous Svardish Rav in Eretz Yisrael. That was loyoleno coming back from a Levaya right after Pesach. There was a bacher who was taking medication, who had to take the medication. The doctor required him to do so, but because he was concerned about the medication to, containing chametz ingredients, he stopped taking the medication on Pesach. And Loyoleno Nebachi was nifter over Pesach. So I'm sharing this story because if we can all learn from this and make sure those we know in our sphere of influence to make sure that someone who has to take medication must take it in swallowable pill form. Now, with regards to someone who's not a choyle masuka, not someone who the doctor says they have to take medication, someone in halachically would be in the category of a choyle noifala which briefly means somebody who feels unwell to the point that they have to be lying down to alleviate their symptoms. So for example, if someone has the flu, an ordinarily healthy person, they have the flu, so they're lying down, to be able to rest and recuperate. they're not; Their life is not in danger. So when the Chachomim, this is of course speaking for the Ashkenazi community, for those Svarim that eat kidneys, it would be a different story, but when the Chachomim asher kidneys, they did not asher it for choilim or for kitanim. So if there's a choyleh that's neifal mishkov, someone who feels so unwell to the point where they have to lie down to alleviate their symptoms, or if it's for the needs of a young child, Then they are allowed to take kidneys for the the sake of them, for their health. On the other hand, if someone feels generally fine, they're able to go about their day, they're able to function. But in halacha we call them, they're in the gather of what's called Mechosh Biyama. They're just, they're not really sick, but they're feeling a little bit unwell. Maybe they're feeling a little bit groggy, maybe their head's a little stuffed but they feel well enough to go about their day, to go to, to, go wherever they're going to go, they don't have to lie down to alleviate their symptoms, to rest in bed, such a chayla is not allowed to take kitnias on Pesach, because they're not really considered to be a chayla, it's only mechash alma. they're only feeling a little bit unwell, they're not really considered sick. Now, now that we've given that sort of akdama, so to speak, how do we ascertain, how do we verify whether or not something only contains kitnias, or has an actual chashash hametz? I guess we can say that's the million-dollar question. So to begin with, just by reading the labels of a product, that's an insufficient methodology of determining what's inside a product. Just for one, in the food industry, the FDA does not require people, manufacturers, to list ingredients that are going in at less than 2%. So you can have an ingredient that's higher than shishim, let's say well, higher than 1.6%, less than 2%, that's going in, that's going to be chomich mamish. And you're never going to know by reading the ingredient label. Just parenthetically, um, I'll just share a little story. I was, uh, we certified a product years ago. that was like a soy-based type of drink. It was really kidney pe'etzim. But it did contain actual oat flour as a thickener. Oat, oat flour is commonly used as a thickener in some drinks. And it was going in at less than 2%, higher than 1.6%, so it was not bottled b'shishim, and it actually contained chametz gomer. So that's one thing we have to realize, is that it's never enough just to read the ingredient panel. To find out if a product is only kidney, so or contains actual chametz, the best approach would be, if the product is kosher certified by a reliable agency, is well before Pesach, to call up the hashkacha, get in touch with the rabbi who's in charge of that particular account, that particular company, and ask him the question. You can email the question sometimes. Is this product actual chametz, a chashash chametz, or does it is it only kidneys And most rabbinim ha because they're intimately familiar with the ongoings of the factory, they should be able to answer that question in most cases. Sometimes they won't be able to find out because it's not always obtainable. But generally speaking, usually they can find this information out for you. Even when the Heksha doesn't certify for Pesach, but because they have the formula information and they visit the factory, they usually can find this information out. Now, what about the lists that are available online, published by various people that do all sorts of work in the research? So the list basically, in short... um, Maishver Rabbi Levi, was not a fan of the lists. He wrote articles about it. And uh, the reason he was not a fan of the list is because the lists are gleaned information, usually from phone calls made to companies. Um, and you're speaking to people on the telephone and you have to hope they're giving you accurate information and you also have to hope that they understand what you're saying. So there's a there's certain sketchy nature about this. Of course, it's, it's uh, the people making this list deserve a lot of credit because they're trying to help the tzibar, but it's important to understand that the list information is certainly not as accurate as information you have directly from a hashkacha that's certifying the product and has intimate information about the product. So if a person's in a matzah halachically, where they have to take a particular product, so the list can only help because halachically, you let it to take it, so you have the base protecting you, so to speak, and the list is good for that extra added uh, level of, of comfort and protection. If someone needs, knows in advance, they have to, gonna take, they're gonna have to take certain vitamins. Now, how, do, how does Allah classify vitamins? So, so very simply, if a person's doctor tells them that they have to take vitamins every day to function, then it has the din of medicine. They should take vitamins in swallowable pill form. Even with saying that, if they're taking vitamins that are kosher certified, it's still a good idea to reach out to the hashkacha, because very often they can find the exact same vitamin, which is vaday only kitneous, and a different vitamin, which may be a chashash chametz. And if the medicinal effect is equal, of course, we should try to take one that's only kidneous. So the way to do that is to speak with one's doctor first, to get the medicinal uh, diagnosis, so to speak, whether or not there's a medicinal requirement, and then you go to the rav, and then you speak to the hashkacha for information. If product is not certified, if it's a vitamin product not certified, and absolutely must take it, then it's the category of medicine. Again, swallowable pill form is the way to go. And do as much research as possible. But again, not with chas uh not listening to the doctor. You have to listen to the doctor and do whatever the doctor says. Is a story, just to illustrate a point, about a very chashe was asked the question whether or not someone's allowed to take medication on Shabbos. We know it's an Issa de Rabbon, an rabbinic prohibition, to take medication on Shabbos because of a chash of shechika samimonim, of grinding up spices and things to make prepare medications. So if someone's in the category of a a chayla and a a filamishkov, they're allowed to take it. So the the Rav Paskin, in this particular person's case, they were allowed to take medication on Shabbos. Someone questioned the Rav and said, you seem to be a little bit callous and a little bit uh, lenient with regards to the Issa of Shabbos. So he said, no, I'm being Machmar on pikuach nefesh. So we have to keep the greater picture in mind that we have to make sure that we're properly guarding the, you pikuach nefesh. It was a chassidat rab who told me the following story, which I believe is quite powerful, which is why I, I want to share with the audience. Rav Afrati from Eretz Yisrael, who was the uh, personal assistant to, to Rav al this story happened about 15 years ago, called up the Chesidish Rav in Brooklyn, who was giving a hechshar on vitamins, and he asked him if these particular vitamins, they were in swallowable pill form, if they're chametz or only kidneys. So the Rav told Rav Afrati that they're just kidneys And the Rav told me, he says, Rav Afrati Rav passed on the information to Rav al and Rav al took them on Pesach, he was 98 years old at the time. He was definitely in the category of a, of a choyle, at least neifel He needed him to function. And that's the halacha. So here you had a, a someone who was known as a Pesach adur in the literature world. And this is what he did. So we have to look at the inei and realize this is what Torah says and this is what has to be done. Now I'd like to segue into a uh, a related topic, but a bit of a uh, a different topic as well. Um, In Yonim, about 50 shokhanarach, things that I would guess I would dub it as technological tension. We live in a society, in an age where there is a lot of technology and we constantly are bombarded by new innovations, new products, new processes. And in some cases, these new innovations make our lives easier from a halachic perspective. And in some cases, they actually complicate our lives. So I've collected just a... uh, uh, some examples of this so that we can help open our minds to uh, this reality and help us kind of uh, almost think and see how things and perceive things from these from this lens. So of course, we know that uh, CCTV today, having a, a camera system, you can have remote cameras put in very easily, that's a very useful tool put in, in one's kitchen to be able to have a sense of of mirtas if one has a goya in the house. Um, again, you still want you still have to have a Yaitzhviniknas proper frequency in the house. But if you're checking the cameras and the, the Goya knows that you're checking the cameras, that of course adds value, halachically speaking. At the end of Hilchas Pesach in Tafnun Bays, it brings down a halacha that if you have a keli that was Baileya that became absorbed, let's say it was a, it was used for chametz and it was a that was used for in, in a hot water type of a setting. So let's say you had it was fire under the pot and the pot boiled water inside there and you had chametz in the pot, now you want to kasha this pot for, for Pesach. So if the pot absorbed chametz through fire, it says you're not allowed to take boiling water that's boiled through chametz teveria, not through fire, and use that as the medium to use as the kashering medium, to let's say it's a large pot, to immerse the smaller pot that you want to kasher into that pot that's being now heated through hamei teveria. Because it's not a like-to-like situation. The absorption was done through fire itself. The kashering, the purging, has to done, be done through fire itself. Why am I saying this? Because today, we have induction burners, which are becoming common and, and, and popular. And induction burner is not real fire. It's magnetic force. And if you have a keli that's beleya through fire mamish, one is not allowed to use an induction burner to boil up water and to immerse and kasha that pot in an induction burner heated vessel. Just keep that in mind, because as we have alternative forms of heating up foods and, and cooking, we have to keep in mind that when we're kasher, we have to use something that's heated through fire mamish to kasha with, if the absorption was with fire mamish. As an aside, induction burners also present another challenge, a Bishalakam challenge, because when it comes to other fires, let's say, for example, a gas stove or an electric stove, in, in mashkichim in restaurants, I'm sure it can relate to what I'm saying, the first thing they do when they come into a restaurant, they turn on all the fires so that the cooking can begin Bishal Yisrael, so a Jew is involved in the cooking process. So when you have the fire turned on by a Jew and the fire stays on all the time without anyone turning it off, then it's rather straightforward. You turn it on and you're good to go. But when it comes to an induction burner where the only heat is generated when you put the the pot down on the magnetic disc, that's what activates the heat. So every time you put the the pot down, you're creating a new heat, a new new heat experience, which is a problem. Then the mashkich would actually have to be the one to put down the pot every time, which is not practical in a commercial setting. So what the hechsherem do is they put in another disc on top of the original disc they screw that down to it, so you have a constant heat experience that was done by the Yid, and then you put the pot on top of that, so therefore the heat never shuts off. Just something to be aware of. Another example of technological tension would be with pilot lights. Pilot lights used to be much more common in home-grade gas stoves. You'd have an actual burning pilot in the center of the range, and then when you turned on your gas burner, it would pull fire from the center range. Due to concerns about conservation of energy, most gas stoves are electronic ignition today, and they don't have a burning pilot. And therefore, you don't have that backup system of having a burning pilot that was turned on by a yid. So even if a guy would then, a would turn on the fire under a burner, if it was coming from a Jewish fire, you have esh you throw, which bid the yeved, is mutter and you also have it being done in a Jew's home, which is another sniff lahatir. So that would be a backup system, but today we don't have that because it's electronic ignition, or if it's an electric stove, you don't have it either, and therefore it creates more challenge in a kosher kitchen environment. From, on a commercial level, commercial stoves usually do have burning pilots inside on the actual burner, so if those are lit by a yid, that does serve as a backup for bishul Yisrael, and it's even better because there the pilot is actually on the actual burner itself, so it has the din of Eish Shal throw not just Eish Me Eish Shal actual Jewish fire. Regarding convection ovens, they're more challenging because as you open the door, they're they're being heated through a fan and through blowing of hot air. And by opening the door, you're releasing all that hot air and it cools down rather quickly. So that's one issue with regards to Bish Shal they Sometimes they, they, they bypass that. But when it comes to costuming a convection oven, another thing to be mindful of is there's a fan and there's a plate. And a lot of times food builds up behind the fan and the plate. The proper way to do that is to actually remove the plate where the fan is to clean it properly before kashering. When it comes to kashering kalim, of course, the kalim has to be cleaned. One has to be mindful when it comes to large commercial-sized kalim. A lot of times the underbelly of the kalim could be dirty as well, and make sure to look there as well, especially if it's not a flat surface that can be built up. Some kalim have like a large lip as well, a tilt kettle, so you have to be careful to look on, under the belly as well of that. Some kalim have a large patch in the front of the keli, which would say the name of the manufacturer. That's also an issue in halacha because there's the din of a patch. And you can have a possibility of having some food buildup over there. So there, it may not be enough just to do hagola because you may not be able to remove the food residue. You may have to actually torch that area just to make sure everything gets properly removed. With regarding vessels that are jacketed, because companies want to preserve energy and they want to conserve energy. So it's very common in manufacturing settings where vessels are steam, what's known as steam jacketed, which means the actual bottom third or bottom half of the vessel is a double wall. And inside that double wall, they'll inject steam that's coming from a boiler and it's run through pipes going back to the boiler once the vessel is finished heating up. So this way, the heat the heat that the vessel generated does not get dissipated and sent down to the, um, the gutter, so to speak, but rather gets sent back to the boiler, and, and it's already hot, so it doesn't have to uh, regenerate the heat, so it saves on energy costs. This sounds all wonderful, but when you have a factory that produces kosher and non-kosher products, or kosher parva and kosher dairy products, this creates a problem because shared steam causes a problem of of, blea, of absorption, and you have shared steam problems. So the way this is dealt with is in many different ways. One way is to actually bleed the steam and not to allow the steam to return. Another way to do that is to put in a like a bittering agent where the steam becomes entirely inedible, and it's, it's totally bitter. There's a special chemical known as b which works effectively in this regard. Just something to be mindful of. Electronic vessels that are heated through electrically do not have a problem of steam return but they do have an issue. A lot of these electronic vessels are also have a jacket, and very often they'll have a, a water loop inside there that's gonna also be get heated up and, and help the product heat. So if that water loop was also used for khametz, it's not enough just to clean out the actual kale. you also have to drain the water loop and refill it with fresh water before the kashering, so that also has to be bled, something to be mindful of before kashering such a vessel. I'll conclude with a story that highlights the importance and the, the fact that we spoke about many, many things that are relevant to the life of a Jew and a Jewess, and we have to follow halacha and lead balanced lives in a way where we can invest our energy according to the way Torah instructs us. Before I get to the story, I want to mention a vart from the Rebbe. Rav Chaim Goldzweig was a well-known Kashrus expert, and about 50 years ago, he was by the Rebbe in Yechidus. His father was a Chassidische Rebbe. And the Rebbe asked him to speak for Neshech Abad about kashras. So he said to the Rebbe, "The What am I going to tell them? They're all Chassidische women who are God-fearing, running God-fearing homes. What am I going to tell them already? So the Rebbe said, they're, they're machmer on things that they don't have to be machmer on, and they're being makele on things they should not be makele on. So what the way I understand the Rebbe's timeless teaching is that the Rebbe is teaching us to invest our koiches, our energy in a place where it counts. To lead a balanced life, it, it cuts both ways. We can avoid the sometimes the tendency or the temptation to get a little too um to in things that are really not that important or they're not not, not necessary. And we can reserve those energies and those strengths and that koich, that koich, in areas where Allah says we should invest it. And that comes through clarity, through proper education. I'll end up with a story that um, I heard from Rabbi Heller when I was in Kailul. Uh, the brisket of son went to bake his matzahs, and um, the briskers are famous for doing all the mitzvahs with uh, great zealousness, and great hidurim with a very high level of standard, etc. And he baked his matzahs. He was a great, great scholar, of course, being the son of the rav. And after baking the matzahs, he was thinking to himself, okay, I did it with all the, the best he do possible, but, you know, this, maybe I could have even done another hither, who knows. On the way back, he's carrying his matzah, he meets a simple Jew who's also carrying matzah, and the two of them converse. And the simple Jew says to the brisket of son, where are you coming from? He says, oh, I'm coming from baking my matzahs. And, and the simple Jew says, oh, interesting, I'm just coming from baking my matzahs as well. And he says to the brisket of son, you know, I'm a simple Jew, and I don't know all the laws of Pesach and baking the matzah, all the hidurim, all the astringencies. So I dove to God that God should be my partner, that I should be. I should merit to have the best possible matzahs. So all of a sudden, in the mind of the briskar of son, he's thinking to himself, maybe the simple Jew has more mohudar matzahs than I have myself. He says, God's, God's looking out for him, you know, and, uh, and all that. So he says to the simple Jew, I'm willing to give you my matzah if you give me your matzah. So the eyes of the simple Jew lit up like the heavens. He said, I'll be delighted for this arrangement. So the simple Jew gives his matzah to the briskudov son, and the briskodov son takes the matzah of the simple Jew, and they both go on their happy way, and then the briskudov son comes home to his father and recounts the entire story to his father, the briskudov, and the briskudov tells his son, it appears as though Hashem answered the tzvilais of the simple Jew. Thank you. All right, Jasher Koyach. Uh